what do you do when what God does doesn't line up with who it is that he claims to be? What do you do when your expectations of God and your experience with God are mismatched socks? They don't seem to go together. We all have this. We've all gone through it or will go through it. And I have a word for it. Do you know what that word is? Doubt. All doubt is, is a conflict. It's the conflict that comes when you and I see the world's badness, but only hear about God's goodness. Where things don't seem to line up. It's present in all of our hearts. The only people that say that they don't have doubt are the people that are in denial. Here's what doubt tends to do. It does at least two things. Doubt tends to extinguish our faith and isolate us in the process. Here's what I mean by that. Um, If faith is like a fire, then doubt is the kid at the birthday party that blows out somebody else's candle. It's unexpected, uninvited. It comes along. And it leaves the owner of that fire frustrated and disappointed. And doubt's isolating, right? Isn't it hard to find a community of faith where you can be honest with your doubts? That you tend to doubt things, and what do you do? You keep quiet because you walk in and everybody else has their hands raised, is praising, is singing, and nobody else seems to doubt like you do. So do you know what you do? Do you know what we do? Keep our doubts quiet. We don't speak up. We don't share them with God. We don't share them with anybody else. Until we get to a place where we just kind of check out. Right? We check out, all right, I don't want to be there. There's not a group of folks here that doubt like I do, so we leave. And do you know where we check into? We find a group of folks who have those same doubts, but have often came to the wrong conclusions about faith. So we find ourselves in a community with folks that doubt. Because in a community of faith, often the way that we're told to get rid of doubt, especially as it relates to God, is just have faith. Give them the benefit of a doubt. He's good. Just trust him. But that's the problem, right? I have doubt because I don't have faith. Because I don't trust him. And the answer is never. It's never. Sweep it under the rug and just don't ask many questions, right? Because here's what you find. Unasked questions are like wet cement. If you leave wet cement out there, it doesn't stay wet. It forms and it firms into something. Unasked questions form and firm into unfounded conclusions about God and unfair criticisms about what it is that he does. Right? 
So questions may start off like, why God? But those questions turn into, how could you, God? Which is more of a statement than it is a question. Does that have to be the case? Do our doubts, which we all have, have to extinguish faith? Everybody has doubts, but some people have strong faith. What's the difference? How do we move from doubt to faith? How do we get to a place where doubt doesn't have to extinguish our faith? I think we see this truth in the book of Habakkuk. It's three chapters. It takes you less than 10 minutes to read. You can go home and read it and find out that he starts off complaining, but he ends off the book celebrating and rejoicing. So what we want to do here in the next three weeks is just help you see, listen, doubt does not have to extinguish your faith. Doubt is often the very tool that God will use to expand your faith. But your doubt has to be directed in the right way. That's what we want to spend our next three weeks on. And I'm just going to let you know off of the bat, um, this first week, will not solve all of your doubts. I'm just starting a conversation. I don't want your doubt to make you end up in a place where you disbelieve God. But what I'm just going to help you to see is what it is that you should do with your doubts, how it is that you start with those. So let me give you a little bit of background about the book of Habakkuk before we dive in. We know more about the state of Israel than we do the prophet Habakkuk. What we know is that Israel is about 25 years away from an exile. God has told them through prophets, right, who stood in between God and the nation, repent, repent, repent. If y'all keep up with this injustice, God says, I'm going to come and do something about it. And it was the prophet's job to tell the people what God said. And what we find in Habakkuk is a nation where you drive through and everybody's chariots has a bumper sticker that says, God bless Israel and nobody else. Before the games, they're singing, God bless Israel. Some people sing it well. There's some people that don't sing it all that well. But the nation itself is corrupt. From the top on down, it's corrupt. And Habakkuk serves as like an inverse prophet, right? So all through the Bible, what you get is a prophet that stands in between God and man. God is going to speak a word to the prophet, and the prophet is going to relay God's word to men. Habakkuk is different. He's going to see a vision from God, and before he goes and says anything to anybody, this is him saying, wait a minute, God, this doesn't add up. So it's him speaking back to God and taking his doubts back to God. And so here's the main point, sermon in a sentence. If you want your doubts to expand your faith and not to shrink your faith, here's what you have to do. Turn your doubts about God into dialogue with him. You have to turn your doubts about God into a dialogue with with him. When you have concerns about what God does, you have to be direct and turn it into a conversation with him. 
doubts don't have to extinguish faith. They can expand it. Chapter 1, get here in verse 2 through 4, right? Um, the very first point that we see here, I've got three. The, very, the first point is when you have doubts, speak up. When you have doubts, speak up. Since we tried to adopt our daughter, I mean, um, what we found, my wife and I have been in the adoption process about four and a half years before we got her, and we spent so much time trying to work through the state, and it was the most frustrating experience because we were trying to adopt a child, but then we ended up being more frustrated because people wouldn't call us back. So we spent our time saying, yes, I have this concern that I want to adopt a kid, but at the end of the day, I just want somebody to call me back. Can somebody please call me back? Habakkuk finds himself here. Look, look here at verse 2 through 4. When he doesn't feel like God is answering his prayers, he starts to pray about not just the injustice. He starts to pray about his prayers. He speaks up verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you don't return my calls? Or cry out about violence and you don't save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. In verse 2, he starts off and he'll use these words, how long, which is biblical language for a lament. Often what you'll find is they are lamenting. God, how long am I going to call out to you about this matter, but you don't answer me? You have a man that does doubt God, but I want you to know it takes an incredible amount of faith to take your doubts to God. And so although he has this doubt, he still has this faith crying out to God, speaking to him about unanswered prayers. And look here at verse 3. Here's what brings it up. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. Do you know what brings up doubt about the goodness of God more than anything else? Injustices in the world that he claims to control. And so what you have is this prophet saying, God, we're supposed to be your people, but I live in a world, verse 4, where the law doesn't seem to work. That the law is supposed to restrain the wicked, but it seems like the wicked people that live have tamed this watchdog that's called the law, and now they themselves are protected from the evil that they do. What he's saying is, God, the people that are carrying out the law are doing evil, and we can't get an indictment. Does that feel familiar? And there's this angst, and he's, he's crying out to God, and hear this, 
doubt often arises in the heart of somebody that's in despair. It's just a a product of pain. You would have thought that he had Twitter or CNN the way that he says, yo, this stuff is always in front of me. I can't shake it. Do you know what this helps us see as well? That the lack of doubt, yeah, maybe you're in here and you just don't doubt. It may not mean a maturity or a presence of faith. Your particular lack of doubt may just mean the presence of privilege. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes privilege can make us blind or naive to the injustices that go on in the world. And being blind to the wrong that goes on in the world can put us at a place where we don't doubt God's goodness. Because we don't have the same stimuli that would drive us to doubt God's goodness. Because we may grow up in a place where we only see the good side of the world, the good side of the law, the good side of justice. And what he's saying is, that ain't me. You may not have struggled with doubt because maybe you grew up like I did for most of my life. Both parents in the house. My dad was faithful to my mom. All of my best friends had both parents in the house. We never missed a a meal. Before high school, nobody in my family had abused drugs. But what about the person that hasn't grown up like that? That hears God's goodness, but all they see are nephews being molested. All they see are friends going to jail for crimes that they didn't commit. All they see are communities being prosecuted unfairly. Who wouldn't doubt? And what he's saying right here is, look, God, God, why do you force me to look at it? This is not somebody that just peers in and says, man, this is tough. I got to turn off the TV. I got to take a break from Twitter. This is somebody that's planted in it. He can't get away from it. And it's causing him to doubt the goodness of God. Being forced to look at the brokenness of world brings up hard questions about the goodness of God that aren't easily resolved. I read a memoir last week from this lady, Ida Beery in in Jerry, called Every Goodbye Ain't Gone. And I just want to read you this quote from the start of it. And here's what she said. She walks down with her mom and she says, Mom, why do these children look like that? I asked her as we walked through our old Brooklyn neighborhood. I often accompanied her on her rounds when I was four or five. It was about that age when we passed the park and saw the knot of children, bent, big-headed, twisted, pushed around on wheels. Why, I asked her. If God was so powerful, so merciful, my mother answered honestly, I don't know. That was the first strike against God, which began my vague but persistent doubts of his existence. 
the childhood skepticism grew. As the book goes on, she talks about going to a small town where her grandfather was killed 23 years ago. And she recounts the way that the police and the court system did such an unfair injustice. She even brings up a point where her grandmother gets the call, speeds over in the car, drives over to the scene of the crime and is trying to push through to see her husband whose head has been cracked on the sidewalk and the police push her off to the side and say, don't worry, ma'am, it was just a nigger. And throughout this story, you read about this lady and she talks about her life, but she just says, Where's the just? I hear about God's goodness, but I see the world's badness and it doesn't make sense to me. I just want to say now, if that's you in here and you feel those doubts starting to come up, I want you to know you have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. I want to apologize if we as a church have done anything to make you feel ashamed of the fact that these doubts arise in your heart without unpacking to see what the context was, what the stimulus was that brought those things. One thing I know is that when Jesus finds people in the scriptures, Isaiah prophesies of it. Matthew 12 tells us that when Jesus sees a smoldering wick, right, just a little bit of faith, what he's not going to do is blow it out. He's going to be gentle with it. And so I apologize if as a church we haven't been gentle or you felt like this is a faith community where you can't wrestle with doubts. We don't want you to go anywhere else. We want you here. And what I want you to know, just to see right off of the bat here, is this text of this book starts off with a man voicing his doubts. And listen, doubts make great conversation starters. If you don't know what to say to God or how to pray to him or what to talk, uh, write those doubts down and relay all of them to him. Yeah, you know, I remember being in middle school and I didn't really know how to talk to uh, girls and so I'd find myself on the like phone and there would just be silence because I didn't know what to say and, and they would hang up and I'm like alright I gotta get better at this so what I would do is I would take a notepad through the day and when I thought of something I'd write it down right and so I'd have this full sheet and then when I'd get on the phone people thought I was a great conversationalist but I wasn't I just had you know, 26 things on each line to talk about. I say all of that because this is what you and I can do with our doubts. That we don't just have to let them fly out, but as they come to our mind, take an iPhone, take your page, write those, write those things down. And then when you find yourself in the morning or at night saying, oh, I don't know what to pray about, or I'm tired of praying the same old things about the same old things, take those and give them to God. Turn your doubts into a dialogue with God. God invites it. 
he starts here crying out for justice, saying, God, I need justice. But uh, when we talk with God, there's two ways to share your heart. One is to give voice to your burdens and start a conversation with someone else. The other way is to vent, and that's to start a conversation with yourself. Where I speak, and then I speak some more, and then I speak some more, and I turn it into a monologue with God. Listen, God is no dummy, and you are not a ventriloquist. God can speak for himself. You don't have to speak for him. And here's the great thing about having a conversation with God. It takes all the guesswork out of what he's going to say. You can share what's on your heart and speak up. But then after you speak up, you've got to listen up. Verse 5. Here's what God does, right? He prepares him for what he's going to say. Verse 5. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Habakkuk is crying out to God for justice. God gives him this word. I'm about to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. And he's like, all right, get ready, get ready, get ready. This is when God's going to rain it down. But this, you know, this is why context is so important when we come to the Bible. I'm sure that we've heard this verse. It's been put on a mug. It's been plastered up. The only time this verse is used in the Bible is here. And then in Acts chapter 13, 44, when Paul's going to pull this verse and use it. And it is never the precursor to this great blessing. God says this, get ready. I'm about to do something that even if I told you, you would never believe it. And look at verse 6. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation that marches across the earth, open spaces to seize territories, not its own. Here's a few things that you need to know about the Chaldeans. It's laid out in Verse 7 through the end of this part in 11, the Chaldeans were a nation that was more wicked than Israel. And so God says, here's what I want you to see. Um, You cried out for justice, and God says, I'm going to give you justice by raising up a wicked nation that is going to utterly destroy you. And so he goes on, and what God does is he's like, I, I really want you to know what you prayed for. And so he lays out in verse 7, they're their own gods. They set themselves up in God's place. Verse 8, God says they're fierce. Verse 9, look, all of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like the sand. God says all of them are killers, all of them. And they're coming for you. And it's not just that he tolerated it. What God says is, no, I'm actually going to raise them up. I'm going to let them do their thing. And here's what you find out. The Chaldeans 
were this unknown force, right? So they weren't like the the big guys on the, the block there at this time. But the way that it spans out, there's this 20-year period where they rise up, get on the scene, conquer the whole world. And then 70 years later, they're gone. Quick entrance, quick expansion, and then a quick exit. What God says is, I'm going to use evil for good. How's that for a response? One thing that you see here, look, God is not angered or offended by his question. God doesn't lead off with, how dare you? But God does give clarity. Here's one way that you can know that you're speaking with God. Does what God say ever surprise you? Or does God only say to you things that you expect, agree with, or like? If God only says to you things that you expect him to say, things that you agree with, or things that you like, uh, you may not be speaking with God as much as you are hearing your echo. Right? You remember when you were kids and you were in a room that had a big echo and you would say, John's great. John's great. John's great. John's the man. The man. The man. And you, you speak and you hear a voice back, but it's nobody speaking but you. Listen. Here in this text, he's speaking. And God gives clarity. But sometimes, even when God speaks with crystal clarity, it puts us in a fog of confusion. God's not speaking in a riddle here, but Habakkuk goes on and says, God, you got to be kidding me. There's no way that you can do this. And here's why I say with our doubts, we don't just vent them to God, we turn them into a dialogue. When you talk to somebody and they answer in a way that brings confusion, What do you do? You can go away and see, man, that's why I don't talk to them, because they don't give me what I want to hear. Or after you speak up and listen up, do you know what you do? Follow up. Look at verse 12. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My holy one, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Listen, Habakkuk is confused. But he doesn't let his confusion create distance in between him and God. His confusion drives him close, right? You see that, right? He takes a page from Johnny Gill's book, right? Three times, right? My, my, my. My God. God, you're real and alive. My holy one, I can call out to you because you're the one that's going to give me just my rock. You don't change. He starts off and he reaffirms the things that he knows to be true about God. But verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
And you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Look, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up the one who is more righteous? Then from 14 into the end of the chapter, he basically talks like this. God, I feel like you've made us fish in a barrel. And what the Chaldeans were known for is they would conquer nations. And what they would do is they would line folks up in a straight straight line. And they would string them through their top lip and march them around. That's how wicked they were. And he's saying, God, these are the people that you're going to turn us over to. He cried out for justice and God said, Here's my justice. It's going to mean judgment for you. Look at verse 17 here at the end. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter the nations without mercy? He cries out for justice saying, God, I don't feel like you're answering me. And then God speaks and he cries out for mercy because he says, God, I don't like the answer that you gave me. But he finds himself in this ongoing dialogue with God. Even though he's confused, he's not going to let God go. His name, Habakkuk, literally means embrace. Even though he doubts, he's saying, my God, my Holy One, my rock. His problem in verse 13. Is this, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than them? What he's going to do is he's going to call him by the covenant name, Yahweh. The name that God gave to Moses before he delivered Israel out of bondage, saying, y'all are my people. I enter into a covenant with you. And he doesn't get it. What he's saying is, God, how can you send somebody to completely wipe us out and give us justice and judgment while still being true to your word to protect us to the end. What he's saying is, I don't know how this judgment that I wanted before I knew that it was going to wipe me out is going to match up with this mercy that I know that you give, but I know that you need. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, look at what he says here. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. If you want a resolution to what takes place here with him, you have to read to the end of the book. The book was never meant to be split up into these three parts. The chapters and the verses are only for reference so you and I can come and go back here. So what I'm saying in all of this is I don't know if I have anything here that will cure all of your doubts without preaching the whole book. But that's not my my point. I hope that we get there in the next three weeks. But in this first week, I just want to help you see 
what it is that you do with your doubt. What, what's, the first, what's your first line of defense when doubt comes? And that's with every doubt. Don't leave a doubt as an unasked question to God. Turn those doubts into dialogue. What chapter 1 shows is God's commitment to holiness. That even if sin is found, on the people that he loves the most and sets his heart on, God's not going to let it slide. He's not going to be an impartial judge. And that presents a problem. Because even if we do consider ourselves more righteous than somebody else, better doesn't mean perfect. Habakkuk says, I'm presenting my request to to God. God, I asked for judgment. You gave it. But what about the mercy? And what he says is, I'll wait. Doubt tends to make us feel isolated. But if we know what to do with it, it's actually an invitation for you and I to get to know God better. In the person of Jesus. Jesus does something with this doubt. It takes a lot of faith to take our doubts to God. And like I said at the front, it's faith that you and I don't have. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that we see here in the text, is that you and I aren't the only ones to wrestle with doubts. We're not even the first ones. Habakkuk is wrestling at the thought of what might take place But you see, when Jesus comes into the world, Jesus finds himself constantly wrestling with doubt, not just in himself, but with a host of people. Everybody that is with, you look at his life, and his life is this constant wrestling and undoing of doubt, and not just a wrestling with doubt, but rescuing people from their doubt. Jesus models what it looks like to dialogue with God when it comes to our doubt. You look at his life. Remember that time Christ was on the boat with the disciples and this big storm came. And based on this storm and how it rocked the boat, what was the first thing that they said to him? The same thing that Habakkuk said to God. Don't you care that we're going to die? Theirs wasn't a question. It was a statement and an indictment like ours. Lazarus dies and his sisters come to him, make an indictment. They don't ask any questions. Lord, if you would have been here, he would not have died. Even John the Baptist, the person that came to talk about Christ before he came on the scene, when he found himself unfairly imprisoned in jail, he sends his disciples to go to Christ and to say, yo, Are you really the one or should I be expecting somebody else? Because right now I feel the world's badness, but I only hear about your goodness. Jesus speaks kind words to each of them. He enters into a conversation with them. Last Supper, on the eve of his death, Jesus 
talks to, to Peter. And he says, Peter, here's God's plan. Jesus says, I'm going to be the fulfillment of Habakkuk 1 verses 13. Here's how God is going to show mercy to the world. The wicked are going to entirely swallow up, not just somebody who's better, but somebody who is perfect. That way, I get God's judgment, and y'all get God's mercy. And Peter says, Jesus, I don't like that plan. And Jesus says, get behind me. You don't get it. Jesus, a man of sorrows, we find he routinely gets up earlier than everybody else. And do you know what he does? He goes out and prays, dialogues with God. And then in God's infinite wisdom in the Bible, what he does is he records two prayers at the end of his life. One in the garden where he's saying, all right, God, I know this was the plan. I even told all of them this was the plan. God, but if there's any other way, Let's do that. God, if there's any other way, let's go there. God, if there's any other way, let's go there. But I'm going to trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. He gets up and finds the courage to go. And then while he's on the cross, do you know what he does? As he's not just seeing the world's badness, he's feeling it, experienced being swallowed up, not for his sins, but for ours. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he gets silence. Because he is taking God's complete judgment as a substitute. So that when you and I cry out, God, where's the mercy? We can look at the cross and... and, and say, it's been purchased for us by Christ. Here's the better news. That should be enough to rid us of our doubt of God's goodness. But do you know what? It's not. Jesus gets up from the grave. And do you know what he doesn't meet up with? He doesn't meet up with people that are faith-filled, trusting in God. In John chapter 20, he meets up with people that have heard that he raised from the dead, but have still locked themselves in a room. Because they doubt. And they don't have enough faith to take their doubts to God. Instead, they're talking to one another. They're talking to each other. So Jesus comes in and rescues them from their doubt by initiating a conversation with them. In Luke chapter 24, the the disciples are walking to another town, driven to despair. Why? Because their friend was the victim of a state-sanctioned murder that was unjust. Justice had been completely perverted. And they said, where could God be in all of this? And Jesus in Luke 24 comes right alongside them and says, God was right in verse 13, being swallowed up by the wicked so that you wouldn't have to be. Jesus does more than just give us permission to doubt. 
Jesus rescues us from our doubt, and he gives us the script of what to say to God with our doubts. And when we don't have enough faith to say those things, he comes alongside and initiates the conversation with us. Who else? Who else finds people that are doubting and doesn't condemn people in their doubt, but brings it out? Gives them the word so they don't have to come up with the words themselves. But they can hear what he says and say, me too, me too, me too. Here's the thing about doubt. Faith is a fire. We talked about that. And doubt is like a wind. It can blow out that fire. But wind doesn't just blow out fires. Wind, if it's directed rightly, it can blow out a birthday candle or it can turn a spark into a forest fire. If you direct your doubts directly to God in the most direct way you know how. God speaks back. He spoke in his final word in his son that has shown us just how justice and mercy meet. It falls in line with the pattern of scripture where saints for all times have been crying out, God, how long, how long, how long? Even in Revelation 6.10, saints that are in the presence of God right now are crying out to God, God, how long until you avenge us and make things right? When you say how long, you're joining in with the chorus of people of faith for centuries. It falls in line with the pattern of Jesus. Doubt makes great conversation starters. Not just with God, or to God, but to and with other people who are sitting right next to you who I can almost guarantee have the exact same doubts that you do. Direct those doubts to God. I can't tell you how many people that I've seen As they're up against the injustice that they find in the world, not knowing what God is planning on doing with this. Don't turn those doubts into prayers to God or conversations among God's people. But those that have sat passively in pews for 20 years now find themselves feeling like they have to go outside of the church, outside of God's word to have somebody that has shared this experience. And they spend time studying things and people and books in ways that they never studied God's word. And all that I'm saying is, look, we've been here a little more than three and a half years. In each of the past 195 Sundays that we've been in here. We've led off with this book. 
read it, sought to explain and apply what it means. And right now you're seeing somebody who finds themselves in a corrupt nation feeling like, God, what are you going to do about the injustice that's all around me? God speaks. His answers are here. Your doubt doesn't have to isolate you from God or anybody else. Jesus reverses the effects of doubt. And now those doubts are a way for us to communicate with depth to God and see our faith expand. Those doubts don't isolate us. But we're invited into relationship with him amongst a community of people that have constantly doubted God because we find ourselves and we will find ourselves in a world that's broken. But in the person of Jesus, what we see is the evidence that even the worst case of injustice to ever take place in the history of the world doesn't extinguish God's goodness. It expands it for all of the world to see, knowing what God has spoken in Christ. That gives you and I at least perspective, at least trust to be able to say, God, it doesn't make sense. Here's what I doubt and disagree with. Lord, would you speak to me? And when we turn our doubts into dialogue, they have the ability not to extinguish our faith, but expand it. This week, do like I did in middle school. Whenever you think of a doubt, write it on a piece of paper. If you don't have enough faith to take it to God on your own, do it with your small group. If you're not a part of a small group, the link is on the website. Join a small group. Take your doubts to people that will help you take them to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good. You use things that seem absolutely evil to bring about such good. And so I pray that when we doubt your goodness against the backdrop of the world's badness, that we would at least think about the life of Christ and how the ultimate bad that took place in the world led to eternal good. Would you remind us that that's how you work? That's what you do, Father. Give us faith. Give us faith that's strong enough to take our doubts to you and as we do it we pray that you would grow and expand our faith it's in Jesus name we pray amen